Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us and letting us be part of your day again. Hope you are safe and well. Be careful. Thank you for being with us. We have a jammed, packed show today. There's so much going on. We're not going to get to everything today. It's going to take several days to go through all the developments happening right now. But we have lots uh, to talk about on today's program, including a planting update in the state of Illinois, which has really gotten off to a a fast start, especially compared to last year, a really fast start uh, in planting. We'll be talking about that. Uh, We're going to talk with Joe Glauber, Senior Research Fellow for the International Food Policy Research Institute, former USDA Chief Economist, his thoughts on... uh, COVID-19's impact on agriculture and restarting the economy. Justin Gilpin, CEO of the Kansas Wheat, will join us for more assessments on the uh, damage to the winter wheat crop from uh, that recent cold snap out in Kansas. So much going on that we have to talk about. I also want to mention I'm getting a lot of calls and emails from listeners concerned and frustrated with what's going on in the country and and problems with the food supply chain and uh, folks with their own thoughts and questions and answers and maybe here's something we could do or here's something that maybe we ought to try i tell you what we're going to respond to a lot of that in the days ahead Um, some good ideas but there are also some issues and we're also learning all of us are learning that even when the government steps in to help we're reminded of the bureaucratic red tape that goes with that and that can slow things down and cause problems so we've got a lot to unpack and unravel here uh, as we go through this so we'll be talking more about some of those things in the days ahead but one of the questions that did come up why can't some of the small meat lockers in rural america uh, pick up the slack if if these processing plants are shut down and i can just tell you quickly that a lot of these plants most of them are already booked they're full they can't handle anymore. They're not equipped to handle anymore. Uh, they have a labor issue. They have cooler shortages and a lot of those issues. And we're going to address that more later in the week. Uh, no doubt they're already picking up a lot of business. More, They're busier now than the normal for this time of year or in some cases any time of their year. So well, we'll, we'll get into more of that as uh, the days go by. Uh, right now, though, I want to talk about two things. One. Of course, as you've heard, the president stepped in. He's ordering uh, these meat packing plants to stay open. We'll be getting more reaction to that. But something else, uh, finally, maybe some help coming for the biofuels industry, some legislation uh, being introduced that would help the biofuels industry. Joining us now is Kurt Kovarik. He is a uh, vice president, federal affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Tell us about this proposed legislation and how it would help. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Glad to be with you. So, Uh, This week, uh, a handful of our champions in the House of Representatives are introducing a uh, biofuels infrastructure bill. This would authorize uh, $600 million over a period of six years to help uh, the federal government kind of shoulder some of the cost of uh, developing and building out additional infrastructure, both for uh, higher blends of of ethanol, E15 to E85, as well as uh, biodiesel blends up to B100. Now I'm not I'm not going to tell you today that this is going to be the the saving grace for our industry to try to uh, get through this economic downturn and this health crisis related to uh, COVID-19. This is something that is um, a good way to help the industry long term. Once we once we weather this uh, current economic turmoil, this is something that will help us, particularly in the biodiesel industry, uh, because we we have unique. 
um, infrastructure challenges. Our, our, our products can be utilized in on-road vehicles anywhere up to B20. Uh, we're doing research to get it even higher, but we're, we're trying to build out in non-traditional areas, for example, in the Northeast, where there's a huge drive towards replacing dirty uh, oil heat with what we call bioheat, biodiesel uh, blended with traditional petroleum products to help uh, heat businesses and homes. That is going to take an enormous build-out of both uh, tank supplies and infrastructure that, uh, you know, assistance from the federal government would go a long way to providing confidence to that sector of the, of the, of the country that there's a commitment to greener fuels, that we can get it there, and that the infrastructure is in place to handle it. Okay, so this will be a longer-term uh, help. In the meantime, you need some immediate help, right? You need some some kind of stimulus, some kind of relief aid for the biofuels industry now. The biodiesel industry is, is no different than uh, any other ag industry right now or any other business uh, in the economy right now. <clears throat> you know, as you see with uh, stay-at-home orders, demand for petroleum fuels is off by anywhere from 30 to 50 percent. That's harming the, 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 the oil industry. It's harming the ethanol industry. It's certainly harming uh, the biodiesel industry. So we're dealing with that. Plus, you couple that with the oil price war that was taking place already between Saudi Arabia and Russia, dealing with depressed uh, prices. Um, and now, as, as you mentioned, you know, we've got all of these disruptive uh, dynamics taking place in the ag economy. Uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend that those are as catastrophic to my industry as they are to the hog industry and livestock industry and others. But in our industry, we're, we're dealing from the repercussions of those disruptions. Our feedstocks are very diverse. We, we can produce biodiesel from not only soybean oil, but animal fats, used cooking oil, distillers, corn oil. Uh, but except for uh, soybean oil, all of those are, are turning into disruptive uh, challenges for our producers just in trying to deal with the market dynamics going on about the availability of used cooking oil, the, the availability of distillers, corn oil from ethanol plants uh, that are, that are uh, going offline. And then, as you mentioned uh, in your lead-in, the, the disruption taking place in the processing of animals and how that's going to be handled and what that means for, for feedstock availability for our biodiesel producers. So, the primary issue right now is the supply chain, the shifting feedstocks, the disruption in those markets, and our members just having to cope and, and, and deal with those challenges. Yeah, very challenging times indeed. Kurt, thank you for the update. We'll stay in touch. Stay well. Glad to be with you. Thank you, sir. You too. Kurt Kavarik with the National Biodiesel Board. Also, um, we're about out of time in this segment, but we'll get started and carry him over into the next. And that's uh, Chad Colby joins us now from uh, Central Illinois. You see Chad on This Week in Agribusiness with Max Armstrong and Orion Samuelson. Chad, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know you've uh, been busy throughout Central Illinois, and we're off to a pretty fast start here. This is where I'm at, too, a pretty fast start on planting this year, although we have rain now that's uh, slowed things back down. But got off to a good start. You know, Mike, especially compared to the uh, the mess of 2019, I think a lot of guys were antsy to uh, get out in the field and get a good solid start. And, boy, this rain kind of came at a good time because this this crop was going in at a really feverish pitch, and that's almost a little scary in itself. But right now, Illinois is at 37% of the corn planted and 18 of soybeans, and I don't have to tell anybody they were single digits last year. So really fast start so far here in 2020. 
Chad, stay on the line with us. We need to take a break, but I want to come back and uh, get your thoughts on on where uh, throughout Central Illinois you're seeing the most activity, how far along they are, how it's been going. But uh, is is indeed a, a lot different story than last year. Uh, finally, some good news uh, in a year that's had a lot of uh, tough news so far. But uh, the planting season in Illinois and some other places off to a fast start. Other places not so fast. We'll talk more about that with Chad Colby. And also coming up, we're going to talk markets with Joe Camp with AgriVisor. So stay with us. It's a busy show. You're listening to AOA. This is a call for all farmers to come to the aid of their beans. Liberty Herbicide can now be applied on your Enlist E3 soybeans. Superior weed control, greater application flexibility, no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Liberty Herbicide battles tough weeds so your beans can live free and grow healthy. Talk to your BASF rep to learn more. Always read and follow label directions. Liberty is a registered trademark of BASF. Enlist E3 is a trademark of Dow AgroSciences. information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams and welcome back we're going to talk markets in just a moment with joe camp with agrivisor but we're going to continue now looking at the planting in the state of illinois we're talking with chad colby you see him on this week in agribusiness Chad, uh, you mentioned the numbers um, very good for Illinois planting, especially compared to a year ago. Um, things are on hold now with some rain, as you said. Maybe that's even a good break for some. Uh, but as you've talked to folks throughout Illinois, especially through the central part, the heart of the state, what are you hearing from them as far as how planting has been going? Well, I think um, it goes without saying. You give these guys a good solid you know, five to seven days of planting, they get a lot of work done. And I think you really see that in that area south of Springfield, really up toward Rockford in that in that whole big heart of the state of Illinois. The thing that's encouraging, I think, in, you know, just in my opinion is, especially after last year, these guys got to get in the field and clean up some of the damage from last year. I saw a lot of tile machines out in the field still last week where guys had a chance to get out because the conditions were actually fit. They were dry. They could get in and get a lot of those little things done, lots of waterways reshaped, lots of reseeding, those kind of things. The other thing, Mike, I really like is Illinois is not alone at this. Iowa's had a heck of a start. They're nearly 40% done with corn. Um, Indiana the same way. Everybody's really got a nice jump here when you talk about the heart of the Midwest, from Nebraska to Indiana. Obviously, you know, places like Wisconsin and Ohio and, you know, even Missouri and Kansas, they're lagging actually a little bit behind of, of 19 Missouri and Kansas are, but um, really fast start so far, and uh, it certainly changes the attitude. I can tell you that at growers here in Illinois. Yeah, I talked with a farmer yesterday uh, in Ohio, just north of Columbus. He said, uh, not much there yet. Uh, they're still waiting for, for, for better conditions. So, uh, yeah, some places full speed and others uh, off to a slow start. But uh, here in Illinois, when you look at the, the progress compared to a year ago, it's amazing uh, you know, how much farther along we are. But, of course, last year was such a, a slow year and, you know, planning into June. So uh, here we are still in April and and, and a lot getting done. Um, you mentioned some of the things out there. Have you seen any problems with uh, as far as farmers being able to get everything they need? Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about disruptions and supply chains and things like that. Have you seen any of those problems? 
You know, I think we all anticipated we would. Maybe that would be a problem with, you know, maybe a fuel supplier or your chemical or fertilizer supplier, that kind of thing. I've seen nothing. Um, even parts availability seems to be good. Um, our ag retailers across the country or certainly in the heartland here, um, even from a machinery standpoint, they've done all the right things. Listen to the CDC and they've adjusted accordingly. And I think that's been really nice to see. And, you know, everybody's been a little anxious. The farmer's been fortunate. He's been able to get out in the field and do a little social distancing in his tractor cab, Mike. And I can't tell you how much of a good thing that is for a lot of folks. You bet. All right, Chad, we'll let you go. I know that you're busy. Uh, you're you're all over the place, uh, but wanted to check in with you because I know you've been talking with a lot of farmers, been in a lot of fields, and uh, appreciate the update. Stay well. Thanks a lot. You bet. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Chad Colby from Illinois. All right, let's move now to the markets. Joe Camp, manager with AgriVisor, is with us. Joe, thank you for joining us and hope you are well. Um, in Illinois, a fast start to the planting uh, season. Uh, some other places not quite as fast, but still, uh, when we look at uh, getting crop in the ground, certainly much better than a year ago. Um, does this add put even more, even more pressure on markets that are dealing with a lot of uh, bearish news right now? Yes, good morning to you, Mike. And yes, it absolutely does put extra pressure on the market that we've had such a, a good start, a successful beginning to the planting season 2020, at least for most producers. Uh, Chad mentioned it. He covered the bulk of the Corn Belt there, a fast start for most of us in the I-States. Still some producers, though, that have still faced some cold rains here recently and and are starting too soggy. Uh, So we'll keep that in mind. But otherwise, yeah, just looking at the numbers, it's a fast start and and a reminder that uh, we can get a crop in here and start to build on inventories that are already that bearish storyline for us. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's look at COVID-19's impact on the commodity markets. Uh, What do you think of the reaction so far? Well, the word used is demand destruction, or that's the phrase being bounced around and in the headlines. And it is a good one. It's destructed demand based off of the policy of the stay-at-home orders that we've got in place across the country. You've got consumers not driving to work, not driving to recreation, etc. And of course, that's less gasoline consumption and less ethanol production. And that's directly tied to the corn market. We see you know, up to half of ethanol production capacity shuttered here uh, because of the coronavirus, and that's a big uh, draw, of course, uh, 40% or so of the corn crop each year being devoted uh, to that market. And so it's just a rough situation all around. And a policy a decision, one that will keep us safe and hopefully get us you know, to a, a point where we can rebuild, but nonetheless you know, still one that uh, now has us waiting for the next sort of guidance, if you will, or point of relief or, or policy action on the government to provide some relief from what we see is very much some demand destruction, and not just in corn, of course, but other stories there to uh, livestock to mind. Okay, Joe, so we're looking for some good news here in the markets. What could spark some kind of a rally in, in commodity markets, given this uh, situation we're in right now? For one, it'd be China following through on the commitments formed in the phase one trade deal. We still have that potential. In fact, it was last week that we had a little bit of strength for the grains because of actual sales 
book to China and rumors of more to come. The Chinese are trying to figure out how they can still catch up on what is now a very lagging pace of purchase commitments following uh, the inking of the deal you know, uh, six months or so ago. And we're looking at now this pressure of them trying to fulfill it under the coronavirus implications, maybe some relaxing of our concessions, but still an effort that could still come by the Chinese to purchase our grains. So we're, well, how many times have we said this? We're looking for something from China to spark our markets, right? Sure. And that's why, you know, the the bears are in control and the speculators are bearish records. So in many ways, certainly in the corn market. And so it's wait and see whether or not we can have that demand from China go alongside with recovered demand in the domestic economy, too. Like I mentioned, some recovery once we reopen, which should be coming soon. So what are you telling farmers who are saying, wait a minute, I'm planting this year's crop. I've still got old crop in the bin. How, how do I mark it? For one, we've said it and maybe too long that patience still being warranted. And, and when we said patience, we were still encouraging incremental sales and, and to put on some protection. But now that we've slid so low and we have bearing upon us these big key lows like $3 and $8 for corn and soybean futures, we're wondering if there is another leg lower here for the grains if nothing develops soon, if we don't reopen successfully uh, here in the weeks to come. And so we are wanting to look at this and hedge our risk and be sellers of old crop, but think about some re-ownership strategies, but still generally say that we can be more active in the weeks to come, which we will still um, expect could include better marketing opportunities. Why? Because we're still moving into the spring. We talked about the a rapid planning progress, but we know that uh, in this season, whether it be spring or early summer, with the uh, production of a new crop, usually comes a weather scare or two and some production uh, slash planning risk. So uh, we've keep uh, keeping that in mind and wondering as the season turns over if we shouldn't be, you know, making some more old crop sales to hold us over and uh, uh, what's ultimately going to still be some tough times for new crop, but uh, hopefully again better opportunities to hedge. So you're saying this market, it could get worse before it gets better? That's that's what we're afraid of in the sense that um, we are against these key lows and we're looking at a dearth of buying interest because we don't have that big news. And so it's one of those things we can look at the spring to come, look at a, a resumption of focus on the fundamentals uh, that would accompany this general economic recovery if we do indeed still have stocks that are going to continue higher and oil that will recover and a dollar that will soften. And then that's the type of recovery that can keep us away from from uh, you know any further fallout. And that's why, for now, we're still going to count on that seasonal to give us a little bit better of an opportunity in the weeks ahead. All right, Joe. Thanks for being with us. Stay well, and we appreciate your time. Same to you, Mike. Thanks so much. Take care. That's Joe Camp with AgriVisor. Up next, we'll talk with former USDA Chief Economist Joe Glober, get his thoughts on COVID-19's impact on agriculture, the president's order to keep packing plants open, and how do we come out of this? What's, uh, what are the steps that need to be taken to get us uh, into a good recovery here from COVID-19? We'll talk about all that next, right here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.
This is a call for all farmers to come to the aid of their beans. Liberty Herbicide can now be applied on your Enlist E3 soybeans. Superior weed control, greater application flexibility, no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Liberty Herbicide battles tough weeds so your beans can live free and grow healthy. Talk to your BASF rep to learn more. Always read and follow label directions. Liberty is a registered trademark of BASF. Enlist E3 is a trademark of Dow AgroSciences. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. All right, we have a lot going on. We're joined now by Joe Glauber. He is former USDA chief economist, now senior research fellow for the International Food Policy Research Institute. Joe, thank you for joining us and hope you are well. I want to get your thoughts and perspectives on COVID-19's impact on agriculture. Let's start with the president's move now to... uh, uh, keep meatpacking plants open. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, boy, this situation has changed so rapidly over the last two or three weeks, Um, and particularly as we've seen, you know, now, what, 20, 25% of the slaughter capacity uh, offline and and with with serious backups at the farm level and talks of uh, euthanizing a bunch of uh, pigs. We're already seeing it with with chicks and other things. So, so uh, you know, the president announced yesterday that he's going to use the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Defense Production, Production Act to go in and, and uh, ensure that these plants are operating. I think you still have the safety concerns, and I think that's going to be the big issue is how well do they address those, and it, you know, is the federal government going to be providing more with working with the companies to try to uh, ensure that the uh, working conditions are safer than they've been? I mean, these have been uh, – you look at these plants, and some of them are real hot spots within the state, you know, accounting for uh, a very large percent of the COVID cases. So clearly the environment is there. I think, you know, a lot of these employees are, are in living conditions where they're sharing – uh, apartments and other sorts of things are seeing each other socially. Um, so, uh, you know, that that's an issue that needs to be addressed. Other, otherwise, you're not going to, uh, I think, you can be hard-pressed to get employees in there. Um, but hopefully this gets the meat supply ultimately back back up because it's it's probably the biggest single issue right now, I think, in, in facing agriculture. I mean, we have labor concerns in some of the fruit and vegetable operations, but uh, and, and 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 certainly the whole issue of food at home versus food away from home, and how that has all been trans um, uh, transformed over the last few weeks. But this meatpacking thing is very very serious. What is an interesting situation, as you pointed out. I mean, it's welcome news that these plants are going to stay open because we need them in business and, and moving product. But on the other hand, as you point out. If you look at some of these states, um, the hot spot, as you call it, the, the, the areas with the most coronavirus uh, incidents are where these meatpacking plants are. So you have that health issue. And just because you say a plant has to stay open, you still have to have the workers healthy and available to, to work in them, right? So uh, even though you order a plant open, it, it still requires people to be there. Yeah, no, I I think that it's a big concern. And 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 look, I mean, these these 
aren't jobs that you just someone shows up and you hand them a knife. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's there there is training with these jobs, and and uh, um, it, you know, uh, so it it I think this the situation. You know, again, I I I understand a couple of these plants are going to reopen. Uh, we'll see what what goes on from there, but I think that that unless those underlying uh, problems are addressed, uh, I think you can continue to see problems, uh, but despite whatever executive order out there ordering people to work. I think it's it's. Um, I think you'll you know I, I already you're hearing unions and others uh, uh, agitate a bit on on this and and you know express I think in in many respects real concerns. Um, so we'll see. Uh, again, it'd be great to see all this back online. Uh, yes, uh, because I think this has just been devastating for for the meat sector, and, and obviously for I mean this 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 reverberates down the line. I mean, you're um, I, I was on a, a conference call yesterday with some people, and I asked, and they were asking, "Well, what, what does this mean for feed?" And you think, "Look, this isn't good for feed. <laughs> if you're if you're depopulating herds and other things, this is uh, or you know essentially." Uh, putting out uh, fewer eggs and things like that it's it's you're just that's going to be a lot of feed backing up too at a time when there's a lot of uh corn backed up because uh ethanol uh production has dropped so much so we're talking with joe glauber former usda chief economist joe as you look at the impact of covid19 on the ag economy how much of it is short term and how much of this could be long-term impact well, a couple of big things for for the U.S. at least. Um, clearly, clearly, the uh, what impact the containment policies are on on things like driving. I think you know if 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 we see a, a relaxation as these states begin to open up, that people start driving again, that that motor vehicle use comes back. Then at least then you can think about well the ethanol will start to respond, but I think there it's going to mirror the recovery you know from COVID nineteen uh, pretty closely and um, and I don't think that that to me that doesn't look like that's going to happen overnight. It looks like we we may be still dealing with some pretty uh, low volumes um, uh, even uh, into the fall and and maybe even into the um, uh, hopefully recovered by next year, but. So that's one thing, and that's that's really large. Uh, we know how much uh, ethanol has helped uh, not just corn, but a bunch of other commodity prices as well, as, as more areas gone into corn and other things. But um, it, it, then you then you have a recession of impacts, and and I, you know I've always kind of downplayed recessions because they people tend to still eat. They still you know they they may go out to eat a little less, uh, but again. This issue has been more with, um, oh, sorry. I, I'm, I'm so sorry. I look like I had another line coming in. <laughs> the, I think the, the issue is um, magnified by the fact you have these plant closures and other sorts of things. But I think the, the economy will recover. It will be slow, but will recover over the next uh, uh 12, 18 months, um, and I think I think our trade volumes still should look pretty good um, uh, over the next year. Um, but 
I, I you know, this is going to be a tough one for U.S. agriculture. I, you know, coming on the heels of a trade war, which was tough on U.S. agriculture. I get the feeling now when we look at what's going on around the country and uh, efforts to start opening things back up and while we still have uh, political leaders trying to hold back, it, it almost feels like, and I, I understand the health concerns, the safety issues, but it feels like in some cases you've got political leaders, you've got government trying to hold back the ocean with a broom. I mean, it just feels like things are about to, to break loose and people are going to say, you know, we're just not going to stay in much longer. We're coming out. Well, it's true, and, and understand that these things are, are really, a lot depends on where you are, you know. I mean, we're mm-hmm. still here in D.C., you know, still seeing uh, deaths and things like that rise. I mean, it, it, it still feels, um, you know, like there, there there's good reasons to be keeping distance from everyone. But I can imagine if you're in an area where you, you don't see a lot of, of very many incidences, and things that, you know, um, uh, that there's, you know, uh, probably those are the areas, and hopefully the, the government will figure this out, and the state governments in particular, on how to open these things responsibly and get, get the economy back going. Because there are obviously huge costs with that as well. Um, you know, but I think the last thing, you know, I think the thing health experts certainly are worried about is, you know, to have another big wave of... Uh, uh, disease hit later um, in, uh, you know, in, in the year, much like it did in 2008 or 1918, you know, we had, they had three successive waves of influenza there. And then granted, that's a long time ago and a very different um, uh, uh, problem in one sense. But I think that that's, you know, that's going to be the real interesting calculus, I think, as we see these states open up and, and try to make that decision. So... All right, Joe. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, wow. This would be something. It's something for the history books. Uh, one way of looking at it, we're, we're living through history, uh, but uh, not the kind any of us would have asked for. That's for sure. But thanks for your perspective. We'll talk again soon. Stay well. You bet, Mike. Thanks. Bye. Joe Glauber, Senior Research Fellow for the International Food Policy Research Institute, former USDA Chief Economist. Yeah, I, I just think and we look at this debate going on across the country, how do we stay safe but reopen? And it just feels like the public is really pushing back and saying, let us make some choices here. Let us, uh, yeah, take, we'll, we'll take steps for precautions, whether it's wearing a mask or distancing or whatever, but don't just try to keep us locked in our, our homes much longer. Uh, you know, let us go out and let us make some of our own choices and decisions on staying safe and staying well now there are certain risks with that but let's face it we don't we don't live in a zero risk world there's always going to be some risk so uh, how do you minimize that risk but still uh, get get your life back going again that's uh, what we're struggling with but it seems like as i mentioned i think the push is going to be especially as the weather continues to improve the push is going to be by people we're coming out we're going to do these things and uh, may do them differently but uh don't try to keep us from doing these things that's a part of our part of our lives uh, again I mentioned this earlier uh, about the the small meat lockers they are they're very very busy and uh, we're going to talk with the executive secretary of a state association later this week they're meeting right now uh, trying to find time to even have a conference call because these lockers are so full and so busy so they're 
picking up a lot of extra business, and they're pretty much packed. So we'll be talking more about that issue as well. Uh, Coming up next, Kansas wheat damage. We'll get an assessment next on AOA. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Network. For farm and ranch information you can depend on and the sources you can trust. Adams on Agriculture and the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Time now for what's become our weekly visit with Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat, for an assessment of the wheat crop in the state of Kansas, especially the winter wheat crop that got hit with some cold weather here not too long ago. Justin, what's the latest? What can you tell us? Well, good morning. You know, uh, what we talked about last week is how uh, when you have a freeze event, it takes uh, takes a little while to start to really see what the impact is on those on those plants and and uh, crop scouting uh, earlier this week's really starting to show evidence of uh, some head head loss that's still in the stem in that central part of the state that uh, farmers are going to be making some decisions on some of those fields, unfortunately. So it's as bad as feared in some cases? I think so. You know, there's a lot of variability. Uh, you know, it, it's so much about, uh, you know, a freeze event is dependent on the weather that follows it. You know, you and I talked a little bit about how this is a lot eerily similar to the 2007 Easter freeze. Well, Mike, you were probably still back in high school then, but uh, uh, the 2000, <laughs> that 2007 Easter freeze was really similar where this was an Easter freeze uh, early part of April uh, where it uh, hit the uh, had an extended cold snap on the crop. Uh, but back in 2007, uh, that crop was, uh, after that freeze, and it was followed by excessive moisture and, and cooler temps, which allowed those secondary tillers to really come on. And so what's different with this year's freeze event is a, we actually have expanding drought areas in some of the western Kansas, eastern Colorado, western uh, Oklahoma that uh, isn't going to allow those secondary tillers. And that's probably uh, what's being talked about most by agronomists and crop scouts is uh, that dry area not allowing uh, some of those secondary tillers to come on. That's really going to uh, uh, eventually uh, kind of hurt that top yield uh, yield potential. Before the cold snap, were you looking, hoping, and thinking you had a pretty good crop? Well, absolutely, especially down in Oklahoma. You know, Oklahoma had a really good year last year. They're good to excellent ratings, uh, you know, in March were, you know, way above average. Uh, they were looking around 70 to 80 percent good to excellent ratings. And their crop was a little further along. So uh, I know we're talking a little bit about central Kansas areas, but there's been a lot of reports here in the last 48 hours about uh, some of the uh, reports where the Oklahoma crop was, was a little bit further along where it's actually headed and experienced those, uh, those sub-30 degree uh, temperatures. And and uh, actually, there's going to be pockets of Oklahoma that uh, really got set back, unfortunately, uh, due to the freeze event. So when you, you've talked mainly about central Kansas, what about the other parts of Kansas? Any uh, big damage in any other parts? Well, the concern is, uh, you know, what we saw with the good to excellent ratings across the United States for the winter wheat crop on Monday uh, we saw the the total U.S. good to excellent ratings decline three percent from sixty percent down to fifty seven percent. 
the steepest declines that we saw were in uh, Colorado uh, and Kansas, and that was really uh, wasn't so much due to the freeze damage that we've seen, Mike. It was it's because of that expanding dryness and drought areas in eastern Colorado and, and western Kansas. So I think that's probably what's really starting to get a lot of attention, is especially because we've got 90 degree temperatures coming uh, the end of this week. Uh, so uh, lack of rainfall and high temperatures is not a good mix for a wheat crop that's uh, at a point where it's, it's going to need need moisture to fill out, but uh, need moisture because it's trying to recover from that freeze event. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of us in other parts of the country where we're waiting for it to warm up and dry out. Uh, it's hard for us to imagine there are areas that are too hot and too dry already. Oh, I know. You know, and anybody that's on social media and watching Twitter right now, you're seeing uh, kind of throughout the Corn Belt uh, really good corn planting conditions. And even for Kansas, uh, you know, the, the good the open weather with lack of rains allowed uh, the planters really to get going and, and people getting corn planted a lot earlier. There's any reports of beans going in a lot earlier. Uh, all of that's uh, maybe good for the, the spring crops getting planted, especially compared to the challenges we had last year. But uh, those same dry conditions that allow planters to get in the field to actually probably not good for some of those wheat areas, especially in the Pacific Northwest. You know, we mentioned the drought monitor and the declines in the crop ratings. We did see a really steep decline in the Pacific Northwest with Oregon dropped from 68% good to excellent to 50% good to excellent So uh, with their winter wheat uh, ratings. So, you know, with all the challenges that we're seeing with agriculture and uh, the low commodity prices and and things that we're trying to get through um, you know there there is a, there's there is a production issue that is kind of starting to percolate a little bit with the wheat market that is uh, worth keeping an eye on just haven't they haven't come up with a freeze resistant variety yet have they <laughs> no they no they haven't you know but the varieties are very uh, you know that you certainly can see when you start comparing 10 year averages when people are really trying to estimate what the yield potential will be and how we use yield calculations. You really can see that the yield potential with the genetics available and the newer varieties we have uh, are, are there has been a pretty uh, pretty uh, pretty good improvement through investment in, in better varieties and better genetics. But part of that's been because some of these winter wheat varieties are earlier maturing varieties. Uh, there's been a push to see earlier maturing varieties, whether you're looking to double crop behind it or maybe there's a better yield advantage with earlier maturing variety. The downside with that, Mike, is exactly what you're pointing out is that earlier maturing variety, if it gets planted earlier, if it comes breaks dormancy, starts growing earlier, it is more susceptible to a, to a spring freeze event like we, like we saw uh, earlier this month. All right, Justin, uh, thanks for the update, and uh, stay well, and uh, we'll we'll check back in again with you. Uh, I know you, uh, you've always got something uh, to bring us up to date on on how things are going there in Kansas and throughout wheat country. We appreciate the updates. Thank you very much. Always good to talk with you, Mike, and uh, look forward to visiting with you again soon. Very good. Thanks a lot. Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat. Well, that wraps it up for today. Coming up tomorrow, we'll... Have, a, have some more information on the legislation being proposed that would help the biofuels industry. We'll talk with Brian Jennings with the American Coalition for Ethanol. Uh, we'll talk with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association about COVID-19 issues and the president's uh, move to keep packing plants open. We'll be talking about that and much, much more. Stay safe. Join us again tomorrow right here on AOA.